Welcome once again to the world behind and beyond. I'm your host, Philip A. Jones. As you know, we talk about topics related to carceral issues, and we seek solutions to problems that are faced by countless men and women, as well as families impacted by incarceration. Today, we have a brother who was detained for a year on Rikers Island, and after being convicted, went on to serve another five years in the Wyoming Correctional Facility in Attica, New York. Since being out, he has successfully conceptualized, created, and directed several multi-million dollar organizations in the nonprofit sector. He is the owner of a real estate investment company called Jim Real Estate and a successful nonprofit consultancy called Jim Trainers, which is a social justice firm. Please welcome to the show, Glenn E. Martin. What's good with you, brother? I'm good, bro. I'm glad to be here. I look forward to this interview and a uh, big shout out to the listeners out there. I hope that what they what I have to say, they find to be informative. Absolutely. I know they will, you know, because your story is one that a lot of people can relate to in a lot of levels. But on a lot of levels, they wish and hope to aspire to some of the things that you have been able to accomplish. I'm going to get straight to it because I know your time is valuable. The first question that I have for you is I see that you've served six years beginning back in 1994 on a charge of armed robbery of a jewelry store. Was this your first incarceration? Uh, and if so, how was that experience for you? Yeah, I would have to be the most luckiest kid in the world to get locked up on my first uh, time. So, I mean, I was sort of in and out uh, of the system around that time. You know, I was young, disconnected from home, um, running the streets, really had cats in the streets helping me to grow up, if you will. And so I was in and out of central booking and jail and the precinct for a number of different minor charges before that, uh, the most notable of which is probably when I was 16 for shoplifting. But by the time in 1994, where I got locked up for armed robbery, um, I was already a young adult. And, you know, it was my first time facing serious time. My first offer was 20 to 40. Um, I just happened to have enough money to get a paid lawyer, a private lawyer, which bought me a lot more justice than I had ever had in the past. And he was able to uh, negotiate a reasonable sentence given the initial offer. That's what's up. And I can relate to a lot of what you said because um, that is important. You got to have a paid attorney. Um, you know, a lot of times we think um, if you can't afford it, you know, a public defender will work. And sometimes it does. But you need to really invest in your freedom, especially when you're facing so much kind of time like that. Because um, my situation was the same and I didn't have a paid attorney going into this, uh, this case. Um, and they gave me a panel attorney. And as you can see, I'm convicted. Um, and I've been serving a lot of time. So I learned from that experience. Uh, appreciate that, brother. Um, how yeah. did you spend the time while you were in prison? That's a good question. So my first year was spent on Rikers Island, which is called Gladiator School. And uh, what else do you do in Gladiator School but practice being a gladiator? So, you know, I would argue that the time spent on Rikers was a whole lot of smoking weed. Uh, trying to sneak food from the mess hall back to the housing block, like just, you know, playing crazy games in the block, playing cards, gambling and so on, because it was just a terrible place to be. It was a place I don't even know why they have the word correction on 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 the outside of that facility, because there's nothing uh, about it that lends itself to correction. But then I got to state prison and this correction counselor was looking at my grades um, in orientation and he was like, wow, you should go to college. 
And I thought this dude was joking, like, you know, one of the worst moments of my life, getting ready to go serve for a bunch of years. And he's talking about going to college. And what I didn't realize is that he actually was serious and that there was a college program about 10 hours away from New York City in Attica Correctional Facility and Wyoming Correctional Facility. So to be honest, I mean, except for all the other things you do when you locked up, whether it's working out, trying to take care of yourself physically, uh, or just, you know, BSing around in the yard or whatever. I was going to school, bro. I was trying to earn a quality liberal arts degree, a two-year degree at a college program that came out of the Attica Rebellion years earlier. So I felt privileged and honored to be in a program that was birthed as a result of sacrifice, even death, for people who were in prison a couple of decades earlier. And I not only took advantage of that for myself and read hundreds of books, philosophy, psychology, sociology, and so on, but I helped other cats in there to be able to get into the college program and to further their education also. I know. And, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, it sounds like once you got off Rikers and went into the prison system, you quickly figured out that this wasn't somewhere where you wanted to just spend time idly, that you wanted to get to it, uh, rebuilding yourself. And since the opportunity was there, uh, you, you, you ran with that. You jumped on that. And uh, that's the difference between people doing time and time doing them. Um, and that basically brings me to question number three. Is there any more that you would like to add to the question of whether educational opportunities for you inside? Sure. I appreciate that question. A couple of things. You know, when I came out of prison, I worked with Dallas Pell, the daughter of Senator Claiborne Pell, for years to try to get Pell Grant eligibility back to people on the inside. And it happened during the pandemic recently. So it took a couple of decades, which unfortunately seems to be how long it takes to get anything done in DC. Um, so I did benefit from the college program I talked about, but it was a skeleton of what it used to be um, because at the time it was privately funded. So when that program was robust, there were hundreds of men in that program. And when I got there, at one point, we were down to about 36 people in the program. It's called a consortium of the Niagara Frontier. And I just kept thinking, like, there's so many men in this facility of 2,000 people who are smart enough and motivated enough to also go to college and earn a degree, but only 36 of us were there on any given day. And that always really troubled me. Um, because what I noticed, even just anecdotally, I didn't need research to tell me this, but the cats who went to college didn't come back. Like they went out, not just with a credential, but like anyone else who goes to college, they went out with all the experiences that come with being in a college class. They went out uh, with a different sense of self-esteem. They went out with a more robust network of people around them to help them navigate difficult situations. So it's not just the college degree as a credential, it's also the college experience, something that we talk about in America as uh, a credential to move you towards the American dream. And why would it be any different for people who are in prison and exiting prison? The fact that they also want that experience, that tool, those networks, to move them forward and so that they can move towards prosperity and security and uh, generational wealth. So yeah, I was lucky enough to be in that program, but if you looked across New York State during that time, 
there weren't many people in college at all because there weren't many college programs left, though I am grateful to say that I and a bunch of other advocates have been able to finally get Congress to bring Pell Grants back. That's powerful, my brother. Knowledge really is power. And with knowledge comes a change in one's behavior. So it makes sense. It stands the reason what you said, that when people are educated, they don't come back. And this is what we're trying to try to convey um, through our work, is that education is the key to success. Um, and gives a person the ability to know what to do upon their release or the tools necessary so that they can be successful. Um, you actually went in around the time when that crime bill took effect and that Pell Grant was taken. And so you came into the system around about the same time that they were trying to take away the education from us. Um, and so it's, it's, it's awesome that you were still able to get into these educational programs um, and take advantage of those, brother, and, I, and I'm glad to hear that. My next question for you is, did your criminal justice advocacy be, begin inside, or did you begin this work after your release? I appreciate that question. So when I came out, I was just looking for a job like anybody else, went to about 50 different employers, had them turn me down over and over and over and over again, based solely on the criminal record. Uh, in the United States, criminal record discrimination is a surrogate for race-based discrimination. You might as well say that you're not employing people of color, black men in particular, um, if you're saying you don't employ people with criminal records. And I've done a bunch of work to make it so that employers can't have those kind of outright bars anymore. Uh, maybe we could talk about that later. Uh, but I say all that to say that I was just looking for a job. I mean, I went to a guy that was selling sunglasses that was like, oh, my God, you're well-spoken, good-looking guy, a black man. Like, I want you on my team to sell sunglasses wholesale to, to retailers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then by the time I got home, he was like, yeah, well, I looked up your background and you got this conviction and kept getting turned down over and over for, like, jobs that had nothing to do with advocacy. So then when I finally got a job, it was because a formerly incarcerated person uh, named George Lino really connected with me at a reentry organization and was like, look, I'm going to make sure you get a job. I'm going to stick with you every day until you get a job. And then I landed a job at a nonprofit public interest law firm called the Legal Action Center and quickly realized that, you know, I could do all the work that these lawyers could do except litigate. I mean, we lock up some of America's best and brightest, and I find that uh, we understate the talent of people who serve time, myself included. But every time people ask me, when did you get into advocacy? I tend to sort of instinctually say, oh yeah, when I started at the Legal Action Center and learned how to do policy advocacy work from civil rights lawyers who had been doing that work for decades. But I was on the inmate liaison committee when I was in prison and I was giving the administration hell. Now don't get me wrong, it was about toilet tissue and other things that we were supposed to have while we were in prison. But still, I believe that my advocacy work started the moment I walked into jail and prison and realized that it was all a lie and that we tell a lie about what we do with people that we put into the criminal justice system by dehumanizing them and then putting them into dehumanizing situations. For sure. And I'm sitting here, I'm looking at uh, a tweet um, that you have put out. And you said I outgrew the idea of employment in 2017, joined me. And then underneath it say, people talk about my failures with such pleasure that you think they were talking about their own successes. So I could see, you know, you had the mindset of 
I'm going to get out here. They don't want to give me a job. They trying to, you know, slow roll me. But I'm going to figure it out on my own, and I'd rather be my own boss. That way I can, I can empower myself as well as finance uh, the things that I'm trying to do. And so, you know, I liked it that what you put on your Twitter. And that tells me a lot about the way you was thinking uh, when you did finally get a position out there, man. And so, again, you know, I'm proud of what you're doing. Um, and you did start your advocacy work in prison because we got to talk for everything we get in here. It, it's rights, but it seems as though our rights are not respected and we got to fight to get things toilet paper, extra this, or, you know, a, a decent meal, you know what I'm saying? So we always been doing this, and advocacy is something that comes natural to us when we're fighting for things that we know we're supposed to have. And so I thank you and appreciate that comment. So your bio talks about your two companies which I'm anxious to hear about because I see that you have a lot of properties and houses and stuff like that. And um, that's something that I have a big interest in. You got Jim Real Estate and you have Jim Trainers, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. What exactly are these companies and their purpose? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so let me start with Jim Trainers. You know, after being a nonprofit for over 17 years, I increasingly came to realize that because nonprofits are funded pr primarily by white elitist philanthropists who may be well-intentioned, but don't totally understand uh, people of color, poor people, our culture, our suffering, our journeys, that I just started to believe that the road to liberation wasn't gonna come uh, through the kind of nonprofit work I was doing. And I found that the more successful I was, the more bitterness and jealousy actually would rear its head in the nonprofit space. And so I left nonprofit under difficult circumstances in 2017. But what I realized was people uh, were trying to come after my income as a way to harm me. Um, not that much different from the cancel culture that we deal with today, uh, because we live in a country where your job uh, is closely tied to your self-esteem, closely tied to health care, closely tied to unemployment benefits, you name it, social security. Like if you want to harm someone in this country, you take away their ability to work. And so in that year that I took off and really traveled around the country and traveled internationally to think about what I wanted to be doing, I realized I needed to uh, be the entrepreneur that I've always been. I mean, arguably, I was an entrepreneur since I was in the streets and built Gem Trainers as a way to work with the nonprofits that shared my values and to help them through executive coaching, fundraising, crisis management, organizational development, uh, the things that it really takes to create sustainability and to build the infrastructure it takes to do the work. But I was very much more interested in building it differently than even some of the things I had built. I learned a lot of lessons um, about building a nonprofit and who you surround yourself with and how people are often willing to stand with you on the mountain, but really willing to hang out with you in the valley. And so I get to work with clients every day who are doing amazing work across the country on criminal justice reform, violence prevention, and so on, um, and help them build organizations to move their work forward. So that's gym trainers, and, and I employ seven people there as subcontractors in doing that work. And then uh, a year after I built gym trainers, I built gym real estate. And I did that because I wanted to diversify my funding. I grew up poor. I grew up on Section 8. I grew up uh, on public assistance. And I quickly, you know, I, I've been sort of running from poverty my whole life, if you will, whether it's sticking up a jewelry store or buying 92 houses. 
I decided that if people were going to come after my money ever again, and if I were ever going to be able to have the voice and the advocacy voice I wanted to have, that I needed multiple streams of income. And I found real estate to be an interesting prospect because, first of all, I said, if our former president could do it, anyone could do it. Um, and so that kind of motivated me because he's not that intelligent, obviously, and I'm much more intelligent than he is. Um, and then secondly, uh, real estate is a thing that's a bit decentralized. Um, you know, you can buy in different states, you can buy in different cities, you can work with different brokers, you can work with different management companies, you can work with different contractors, you can work with different lenders. And so it's, you know, it's sort of a plane that never lands. And I find that um, because it's decentralized, it's, it's difficult for people to, to cause harm and to get in the way of your uh, pursuit. But then over and above that, it just makes a shitload of money. Like I got rich. I got rich in three years off real estate. I have a $10 million portfolio. I have 92 houses in multiple cities in the South. Um, I earn money through equity. I earn money through rental income. And I save money on my taxes through depreciation. Pick up on the other side and you can conclude your answer. Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say... Go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G R A N T P A R O L E T O P H I L L I P dot com. And scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees as I'm in need of a criminal attorney. Uh, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support and thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it, and um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference, and I'll be home soon. Brother, you can go ahead and continue uh, if you weren't done with that uh, response. Yeah, let me go a little further, because I think there's some important stuff here. So another reason, another reason I think real estate is attractive for people who've been involved in the criminal justice system is that you know, unlike employment, uh, there aren't a lot of barriers. Like people ask me, well, isn't there a barrier to licensure? And I say, I don't have a real estate license. The same way if I decided to start a, a private jet company, I wouldn't have a pilot's license. If I wanted to start a limousine company, I wouldn't have a driver's license. I'm the entrepreneur. Like the person who has the license works for me. And so there's a huge opportunity for people to get into this space and to earn money and to not have to deal with all of the statutory and practical barriers based on a criminal record that we have to navigate in this country. So there's multiple reasons why I've set up my life this way professionally, because it does allow me to move through spaces uh, as an entrepreneur and not as an employee, because as an employee, I've not just faced uh, barriers based on my criminal conviction, but I have also faced, you know, people around me who are judgmental, people around me who have their own policies around criminal records. Whereas as an entrepreneur, you know, strangely, you would think people in the nonprofit space are supposed to be the most compassionate, the most forgiving, the ones giving second chances. But if it's an employment setting, which it is for most people, um, you run up against these barriers, even with some some of the most progressive, quote unquote, people in the country. Whereas with entrepreneurship, it's really clear what people are after. People want to make money. And I know there's like this progressive, white, left-leaning, liberal, woke supremacist argument about poverty being some kind of badge of honor. 
but I want to see my people have money. If we all going to decide capitalism is a bad thing, let's decide it together while all of our pockets are fat. You don't get to decide that for me. So I'm a fan, particularly of people of color, but just about anyone involved in the criminal justice system coming home to have the ability to have access to wealth. My kids are in the most expensive private schools that New Jersey has to offer right now. Like if I want to purchase just about anything, I can go out and get it. And yet I live a simple life, you know, small one bedroom apartment up in Harlem. But at the same time, like I don't really have a need anymore. And my mind never thinks about going through that back door of crime because my needs are met. And so the manufactured scarcity that we put people in, in places like Harlem, but also places like prison, that no longer exists for me. And so why is it a surprise that now that I have access to resources that, you know, committing crime and, and, and doing those sort of things really don't cross my mind. I think that, you know, that works for most people in this country. Why wouldn't it work for people exiting the criminal justice system? I mean, it's not a silver bullet, but it damn sure works for most people. And we should open up that opportunity for people with criminal records. And you just gave the blueprint. You basically laid it out, especially for our listeners, those who have family members incarcerated or anybody that is, that is incarcerated. The brother's telling you the blueprint for success. When it comes to being your own boss and an uh, entrepreneur. And so me and you, uh, before I go to the next question, we got to figure it out too because I'm trying to get with you because I'm in the same thing. I'm trying to do it from prison and I'm trying to have multiple streams of income and I want to be in power when my feet touch the ground because I don't want to have to go here and have these doors slammed in my face uh, because I have a criminal record. And so, yes, uh, I, you got the information that I need and uh, the rest of our listeners, if you're listening, I'm sure they're going to get at you and try to contact you so they can learn some more. Uh, but I'm definitely going to be one of them. The next question I have for you is how can other incarcerated individuals replicate your success? Uh, so thanks for that question about how people can replicate my success. A couple of things come to mind. One is that no two people's journeys are going to be exactly the same. So while people can learn, look toward me and other people they admire for direction, they should trust the process and realize that their, their journey might feel a little bit different, number one. And number two, uh, they should be asking questions of people like me. That's not just about the mechanics of the kind of businesses I've been able to create, but the thinking behind it. Like, what motivates me? What do I do when I'm scared? What do I do when I'm nervous? What do I do when I don't know something? So those are the kind of questions I'm going to answer, uh, and you're going to hear it come out in my response. So, for instance... You know, people give me a lot of credit for buying 92 houses in 36 months. I just bought 36 of them eight weeks ago or so. Honestly, I don't know a whole lot about buying real estate. <laughs> you know what I know a whole lot about? Surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me and letting them do their thing. And so my real estate advisor partner is formerly incarcerated. I met him on Twitter when he was still on house arrest and he was extremely depressed he had just come out of prison. His parole officer was being a jerk. And he just saw hope in me. He like saw some of my tweets. And he was like, it gives me hope to see another formerly incarcerated person speaking up like that. And I saw someone who needed my support. Like I'm really big on helping people when they're in the worst places in their lives, because that's what I needed. I connected with him and invested in him, lent him uh, six figures. And he in turn helped me and that's what that's what propelled me forward. But my point is this, like even up until today, I have a strong, deep relationship with him. That's a mutual relationship where he gets something valuable out of it. 
I get something valuable out of it. And that keeps our relationship tight and solid. But by far, if it's about real estate, he is 100% more intelligent about real estate than I ever will be. The truth is, I don't want to get around the full curve of real estate. I want to know enough to know where my money is, where it's going, what's the, the ROI, what's the return on investment. I want to, like the same way you get in the car and you look at the engine and you know whether it's uh, in the right place temperature-wise so that it doesn't overheat, you don't really need to know much more than that. You know, if your gas tank is a quarter of the way full, an eighth of the way full, half the way full, you don't need to know much more than that. Like, so I need a dashboard and I need to be surrounded by smart people. And that's how I run businesses. If you talk to me about real estate, it's a different story. I'm him in real estate. I mean, a uh, nonprofit. Like I am him when it comes to nonprofit. I know all the details. I know how to raise money. I know how to build an organization. I know how to structure a 501c3. I know how to structure a 501c4. I know how to manage crises. I know how to hire people, terminate people. Like I have seen uh, just about every element and engage in every element of uh, nonprofit. But the short answer is find smart people, motivate them, invest in them, have them invest in you and trust the process, uh, but verify. Most definitely. And uh, I'm soaking it up. Um, and I hear where you're coming from. It's more, it's more so that you have to network and surround yourself with those who are in the know. You know, in order to uh, to be successful, you want to be around successful people or people that have the information that you need to achieve the goal that you're trying to accomplish. And, I, and I'm all the way with that myself uh, because uh, I, my saying is uh, one of the African ones, Ubuntu, I am because we are, you know what I'm saying? I tell my team all the time, I would not be able to do any of these things without them. And so I I definitely grab a hold of the same concept. You know, it's a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. And I want to know all the other questions that you asked, that you said someone should ask you, because that's getting to know people and learning from them without coming directly with the question of business or any of that. It'll come to you how, they, how they're successful by what they're saying to you about who they are. Thank you for that. Uh, my next question kind of goes into more of, of the work that's being done out here and what you're standing for out there and how you're helping, uh, you know, put it in the system. So I would ask you, how would you go about creating a network across the country who is willing to call on people they know in, in positions of power uh, to restore certain cases outside of court? How can we come together? And do you believe that this is something that will be uh, beneficial uh, going forward? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think everything I've learned about building campaigns, I mean, I think, you know, I built the campaign to get New York City to shut down Rikers. And that was probably one of the more ambitious campaigns that I worked on and really led and built from scratch. But everything I've learned in 20 something years of organizing and doing policy advocacy work is that you really got to meet people where they are, um, thinking that people are just going to automatically be interested in what you're interested in is foolish, to be quite honest. You have to figure out what are people already interested? Where are they already going? What are they already thinking about? What do they, what already inspires them? And then you gotta figure out how to work your issue into that thing that they're already paying attention to. The advice that I'd give to anyone who's trying to change the way we think about justice in this country is to first of all, um, not bring people to the table kicking and screaming, but really try to find ways into spaces where they're already at their table and then putting your issue on, on the menu, if you will. The second thing I would say is uh, we live in a country that whether we like it or not, 
is a democracy and it is a screwed up democracy. It is a false democracy in many ways. It's a representative democracy and it's a very tribal democracy, but it's a democracy and you can't get things done without multiple people who don't look like each other, sound like each other, live close to each other and so on, deciding that they have skin in the game and, and that it makes sense for them to put their voice behind something so, you know, when I built a nonprofit, I built Just Leadership USA, you know, I would have members from every state in the United States. I would have white formerly incarcerated people. I would have rural formerly incarcerated people. I'd have all types of people. And everyone else was like pushing me saying, nah, this is about black people. This is about black people getting locked up disproportionately. I was like, yeah, but this is America. This is about white people saying that we shouldn't be doing that for us to change the way we do things. And so I remember looking at some research when I built that organization that said, the more you convince white Americans that black people are disproportionately locked up, the more they don't want to have anything to do with it because they feel like then that's about them black folks, let them handle it. And so if you know that and you know what works and what doesn't and what motivates people and what doesn't and you really want to see change, then you got to follow what the data tells you. You got to follow what the research tells you. You got to follow what's effective. You got to follow the thing that's going to give you the outcome you're looking for. And you got to recognize when your emotions are in the way of you doing the most intelligent thing to move that issue forward. So look, what you're stating is ambitious. I think it cuts against what people right now believe in, which is the constitution and a criminal justice system that we've been taught to say works and administers justice. And so I think it's a Herculean task, but I thought closing Rikers was a Herculean task. And then a year later, we got the mayor to buckle and to say, yes, that Rikers was going to close eventually and to pass some laws and policies to move it in that direction. So I am a believer that a small group of people can change the world. I think it was Margaret Mead, who I learned in prison in college, who said uh, a small group of people can indeed change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. So uh, I'd urge people to keep moving in that direction, but be thoughtful, be smart, and be strategic. Most definitely. Y'all heard it right there. So given all that you've done through your work and your advocacy, uh, and also the political climate that you spoke of, are you still hopeful for the future? And if so, why? Yeah, you know, the opposite of fear is hope. So people try to lead through fear and scare people into doing things and behaving a certain way. And to me, the sort of, you know, the, the polar other end of, of that is hope. Like as a leader, you have to give people hope. You have to give people a vision. You have to help people understand what we could do differently and what the world could look like if we did things differently. So, you know, people, I might land for people as transactional sometimes as like this entrepreneur, as someone who uh, is methodical and, and, you know, I always tell people like, I, I don't take a piss without a strategy. I'm always thinking about strategy. That is, that is all true, but I wouldn't be on my feet right now if it wasn't for hope and faith. Um, I, I, there've been, there's been times where people have tried to crush me, where people have almost inspired me to jump off my balcony and end my own life, like days where I couldn't put my feet on the floor. But you know what I always remember? I remember that I left behind people like you who are sitting in a cell trying to change the world from one of the most oppressive situations that any human being can be in. And if you can find a way to put your feet on the floor every morning, then I need to get my ass up and keep believing 
and having faith and having hope. So yes, the short answer is I absolutely have hope. And people who are in a dark place, even if they can't see the ground in front of them, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I guarantee you eventually you'll see the horizon and the sun is right there on the horizon. But it's in the darkness that you have to keep trusting and putting one foot in front of the other, even if you can't feel people next to you and hear people next to you. Because sometimes, as I said earlier, it's in the valley that people abandon you and you find yourself by yourself. But that's where you grow exponentially more than when you're on the mountaintop. So people look at me now and they're like, oh, he's doing his thing. He's chilling. He's a multimillionaire. He's on top of the mountain. This ain't where I learn my lessons. This ain't where I find my friends. I find my friends at the bottom of dark wells. And then I, I, I eat with the people I starve with. That is amazing. And uh, it's so crazy because you said it's something that you said that a lot of people are going to hear. And they're going to be encouraged by um, the fact that you said that, you know, people had had you so, you know, back against the wall or felt so much stress that you was thinking about, you know, ending it all. People need to hear that because you're in a position where people would think, oh, nothing can phase you. You know what I'm saying? It'll just fall off your shoulders. But we all have challenges. We all have things that, you know, cause us to feel uh, outside of ourselves. In my, in me being in my situation, I knew that it was absolutely necessary for me to continue because without it, you know, there was no other option for me. Either I, you know, I keep swimming or I'm going to drown. And so in my mind, I always used to use that analogy to say I didn't have any other choice um, but to tread water. So um, I feel you on that. And that goes to us helping each other, us sharing our stories, you know, us uplifting each other, you know, and remembering. Uh, those who are in vulnerable positions, you know what I'm saying, like you just said. And so that meant that hit me hard, and that meant a lot to me, what you said, and uh, brings me to the final question that I have for you. If someone in my situation wants to work with you or receive some mentoring guidance in, say, the area of real estate uh, or even uh, the nonprofit sector, uh, how would they go about it? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So I, I think I want to maybe under promise and over deliver because I'd rather that than the other way around. A couple of things. One, as you probably know, I'm super available on Twitter and people hit me up all the time. People slip into my DMs and ask questions, but I also give away jewels all the time. Like some of the stuff I post on Twitter, people pay me $750 an hour for. So I would urge people to really pay attention to my Twitter account and see what they can learn from there. Um, beyond that, uh, for people who are out and a little bit more established, I think you probably also know I do coaching, particularly on real estate, um, to get people's minds oriented about how to get into the game and exactly the strategy I use called BRRRR, which is buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. And so I do a, a paid coaching session with people to sort of walk them through that. If the people are formerly incarcerated and uh, directly impacted and they can't pay the full amount, I tend to reduce my price. And sometimes I just offer my services pro bono, but I'm very accessible. So I think that people should go through my website at gemtrainers.com, hit me up there or hit me up on Twitter, which actually might even get you a quicker response because I just spend a lot of my time there. And, you know, I'm open to questions and what people will get from me is, uh, you know, I really like to to use an outused term, teach people how to fish. Um, so people might ask me one question, think it is the question they need an answer to, but I'll usually give people an answer that'll be a light bulb moment for them that'll open up their thinking 
and, and allow them to move forward without asking me a bunch of other questions because now I just demystified something for them. But those that's a couple of ways people can hit me up. Hey, man, it was a pleasure. You know what I'm saying? I learned a lot just in the, the interview. Um, and I take notes, you know, mentally. And I'm definitely going to... You have 60 seconds remaining. And I'm definitely going to um, try to soak up some of the gems that you're putting out there on Twitter. Hopefully I'll be there soon. You know, I'm the type of person, like you said, I'm a replicator of, of success. You know, if somebody did it and it, and, it, and it was successful, I'm trying to do it too. I know we all have our own paths to take, but we can learn a lot from each other because there's always each one reach one, each one teach one. So thank you, my brother, and I appreciate you for passing through. And this will... You have 30 seconds remaining. This will yeah. be my brother, Glenn E. Martin, y'all. Check him out. Keep following him. You know what I mean? He got with you. What you looking for? Stay up. Cool. Thanks for the opportunity. Stay up, bro.